Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and with me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I am about to go back to teach in person for the first time since March, and I am very much looking forward to it, but I'm also wary about how that's going to go. We'll see how safety precautions and students coming back in droves to campus will go. Um, I'll have to teach online and in person at the same time if students decide to take the class via webcam, so that will be a new challenge, but I am looking forward to seeing people in person again yes interesting times one place neither of us will be going for at least the near future is a movie theater but that does not mean we have not been watching movies during the past few months and today we are going to just have an informal discussion of some of the movies we have seen uh basically since the last time we recorded in early june uh just sort of go over things that we've enjoyed not enjoyed would recommend to other people do you want to get us started jonathan Sure. I will start with a very Jonathan pick. Uh, A 1971 experimental documentary by Stan Brakhage called The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes, which is a completely silent, and I don't mean no dialogue, but with music, but there's no audio in the film. Mm -hmm. It's just 32 minutes of actual footage of autopsies. And uh, it's a I was going into it very wary of like, oh, I might really have a problem watching this, but uh, I'm not very good in real life with medical stuff. I'm I'm a good patient, but like when I get my blood drawn, I turn my head and I don't look at the needle and I want them to tell me as soon as it's out so I can go, okay, okay. And I can like, you know, I can cringe up and, you know, know there's not a needle in me, but I've seen so many slasher movies and zombie movies that it didn't bother me at all. I mean, there's a little bit gross. You kind of go, ooh, that doesn't look very nice. But what's fascinating about the film, it's one of those where you're like, well, why would you watch this? What's the point of this? But mm-hmm. it's it's really fascinating to discuss it afterwards. I'm actually thinking of showing it in my documentary class this fall. Ooh. I always say that at, at least uh, every class, I have to show at least one film that's as Lars von Trier says, a film is like a rock in the shoe. So I have to show at least one film that's going to, you know, the students aren't keep them on their toes. Like, what's he going to show us next week? Right. So what's fascinating about the film is that you're just watching actual footage of bodies being cut up and it makes it's like existential. It makes you question what does it mean to be human oh, yeah. if you cut someone's body open and you take their organs out and you you know, cut open the skull and you take the brain out and you pull the skin back. Like, what are you left with? What does it mean to be human? And also, even if someone did have a problem and was really disturbed or grossed out by the images on screen, especially by the end of it, towards the end of it, you become numb to what you're seeing. And I think that's what the people who do this for a living must have to do. They, they just, it, it, it it for much longer than 30 minutes. It's like their whole life. Right. And I think that by the end of it, it almost, it, it is an experimental film. So it becomes like, uh, a Jackson Pollock painting or, a it looks like a landscape. Like you, you almost don't think of it in terms of like, this was the chest, this was the leg. Mm-hmm. You, you think of it as like your watch and it's, this gets really pretentious, but it's also like, you're not seeing a dead body. You're seeing, 
you know, the color red, you're seeing it light and moving images on a screen. You're not actually seeing a dead body. So when you're watching it, you start thinking about what the purpose of film is. And it also, I mean, it, it, it's, it's actually a pretty thought provoking film about death and decay and what it means to be human and what the purpose of a film is. So I think it's one of those that will actually spur a really interesting discussion. It's in the Criterion Collection box set that has many of his films. And uh, like I said, the title is The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes. And it is on YouTube also. Huh. Uh, just make sure you, there's actually two versions of it on there. It's the same film, but one of them, someone added music to it. Watch the one that has no music. You don't want to watch, uh, you know, a soundtrack with. Well, your or you can song. put your your own music according to it. I, we saw some of his movies, uh, if you could call them that. I guess they're movies, short films. Uh, while we were at NYU at a screening, from what I remember, his style is not exactly fly on the wall. So I assume it's not just looking at stationary images, bodies being cut up. He makes it a little bit more challenging uh not necessarily challenging but just a different sort of experience that one would expect is that sort of how it is right well uh, i could have a companion piece with this i could show as one i think one of the ones we watched in class uh or i think we actually remember we went to the anthology film archives yes. and saw some of his films the one where his uh, wife is giving birth and you see <laughs> yes. extremely graphic close-ups of her vagina crowning and her baby coming out it is extremely and... graphic and would definitely make a counterpoint to the death one. That is interesting. Right. And um, what's interesting is, he, well, he has a very shaky cam. I mean, yeah. you know, he puts Paul Greengrass to shame uh, <laughs> yes. because it's like really uh, frenetic. Uh, but what's fascinating, too, about the act of seeing is that there'll be scenes where almost or shots where almost the entire screen is white, where there's a technician standing in front of the camera and like, you know, six sevenths of the screen is white. And then you see like this graphic, you know, bright viscera red and it just, it, and then like he moves a little bit and then there's like a body and it's just this tr uh, contrast of the sterile, clean white lab coats and the tiles and the surfaces. And then just the carnage. Really, yeah. The, the viscera and the gore and the 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 juices i mean i it's interesting i think that the film would be a whole different experience if there was actual audio from uh -huh. the the autopsies because you would hear gurgling oh and yeah hear bone saws. saws right and um the it, by having no sound you're really focused in on the images uh-huh uh, so yeah, I mean, this is a film not most people will want to watch, but it is on YouTube. It's so very available <laughs> for anyone who's brave right. enough to try it. Right. I guess from the lofty heights of experimental cinema with Stan Brackage, I'll bring us a little more on firmer ground with one movie I liked a lot and another I thought was terrible. Uh, I had seen the Dirty Harry films. That's Don Siegel, right? With uh, right Clint Eastwood, very famous movies. Uh, sometimes I forget it's part of a series, so I made a point now that HBO Max has all of the Dirty Harry movies to watch all of them, but the third one I was so <laughs> disappointed by that I chose not to watch the fourth and the fifth. The third one is The Enforcer. The second, Magnum Force, I liked quite a lot and was one of the better sort of uh, 70s action movies I've seen. Have you seen any of uh, the non-Dirty Harry, Dirty Harry movies? I have not. I taught 
the first one is one of the first films I showed in my action class because there's all these films that came out in this, in 1971. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Dirty Harry. Was that the Deliverance? Connect, uh, I'm not sure, but or was that 73? Uh, the French Connection 71, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, uh, Billy Jack, Shaft. All of them came out in 71. Uh huh. And I think The Enforcer was 72 or 73. And that actually had, like, a very interesting cast. It had, like, David Soul from Starsky and Hutch played one of, the, like, the young police cadets who uh, gets it his way. Hal Holbrook, uh, who most people would know from... Uh, Into the Wild, probably. Yeah, Into the Wild, or... Uh, he plays Deep Throat in All the President's Men, but you can't see him because he's Deep Throat. But, you know, it's Hal Holbrook if you know who he is. But uh, which one was that that Hal Holbrook is in? Uh, I think it's he's Magnum a- Force, yeah. Magnum Force, I highly, highly recommend. Uh, the Enforcer, I cannot emphasize just how bad The Enforcer is. I think it was directed by like a longtime friend of Clint Eastwood, who was like the second unit director on a lot of his movies, like Outlaw Jersey Wells and stuff like that. It is, it is so bad. Tyne Daly, who people would know from Cagney and Lacey, I think plays this sort of like female counterpart. It, it's just such a stupid female role where she's just like showing him that women can be empowered too. It's just super cliched and, and very, very bad. It has like the worst aspects of Clint Eastwood being Clint Eastwood. Um, but it, I mean, it is worth seeing just considering action franchises as a thing. Dirty Harry's like must be one of the first big action franchises. Uh, wouldn't you think so? Right, and did um, Clint Eastwood actually only directed one of them, right? He did the fourth one, which maybe I'll be brave enough to watch it, because apparently it's pretty good. Um, well, but, you know, but I gave uh, up. Sudden Impact is the fourth one, and then the Deadpool is the last one. I know that Jim Carrey, one of his very first films, is one of the later sequels. Mm-hmm. I think it's. I think he's in the Deadpool, the last and, one. And I was going to mention that Rennie Sintoni, uh, who plays Chico in Dirty Harry, died just earlier this month. Oh. Is 81. But yeah, but yeah I, Dirty Harry's a movie most people, if they're film fans, would be familiar with. But maybe not Magnum Force and The Enforcer. <laughs> Magnum Force, thumbs up. The Enforcer, two thumbs down. Very, very bad. Clint Eastwood's one of those directors where I've seen very few of his films before i started seeing him in a theater when they originally came out Uh but i've seen of the ones he directed i saw his first one play misty for me which by the way bit of trivia in the background of the famous scene you know how many shots did you know are you looking at me well no that's taxi what is it the famous line you know uh you know punk you know oh uh, (laughs) do i feel lucky well do you punk In the background on the marquee of the theater, Play Misty's playing. Really? Which is, right, a bit of trivia. Anyway, I've seen Play Misty for me, Unforgiven, and yes. then I've seen like his last 12 or 13 films. Since like in a Million row. Dollar Baby, basically. I saw Million Dollar Baby in a theater. I have not seen the two uh, companion piece war films, Letters oh. from Yuchima and First Letters from Yuchima is really good. Flags of Our Fathers right. is not as good. But yeah, that's around when I started watching, yeah, contemporary. Right. Clint Eastwood movies but I've been a completist like I saw Hereafter and Jersey Boys Mm -hmm. and I saw all of them I saw Million Dollar Baby I didn't see the two war films but after that I saw all of them I saw all of them in a theater in the originally so I need to go back and watch his film I've seen the he didn't direct these obviously Leone did but I've seen the Dollars Trilogy Uh 
I've seen a few films he's acted in, but uh, I need to catch up on his older films as a director. And it's crazy. He's 90 now. And yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't for this Dan pand- pandemic, he probably would have been uh, shooting a movie and had it out by December. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for real. I mean, yeah. probably one of the underrated directors and actors probably uh in the history of american cinema i mean it's someone people always like clint eastwood he's obviously a legend but truly some of the best movies made in the united states like unforgiven um i'm a big fan of (laughs) million dollar baby some people think that's one of the ones that didn't deserve to win best picture but screw those people he might fit into the category of really good actor maybe even better director yeah exactly like ben affleck i would say (laughs) which by the way did you see what they announced he's going to be directing a film about the making of chinatown i did see that that's going to be something else if they like actually have someone playing jack nicholson and roman polanski and stuff like that yeah it'll be a little bit tricky because they're so you know recognizable and it's not that far you know exactly and it's like a movie a lot of people haven't seen even if they're not necessarily the biggest movie fans and uh, the day we're recording this on August 9th is the 51st anniversary of the Sharon Tate murder. So, ah. uh, you know, it's like the, the thing that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did really brilliantly is that, like, you see Roman Plansky and uh-huh. Steve McQueen, but uh, most of those really well-known people you don't see very much. They're briefly in the film. I mean, obviously uh-huh. Sharon Tate's in it quite a bit, but even she's, like, a supporting character. Uh-huh. But it'll be interesting to see, like... How does someone play Jack Nicholson? How yeah, does someone that's play? That's why I was curious about that. Like, is it actually going to, like, is Jack Nicholson going to be a big character? Or is it going to be, like, about a producer on the film who just, like, tangentially involved with Jack Nicholson? Or is, like, someone going to be in, like, most of the movie playing Jack Nicholson? It's... I, I bet Robert Evans is going to be the one of the main characters. That's and, probably you know, true. He's the a producer. Big, right. He's one of the, you know, huge people in New Hollywood, but it's not someone that's so that the average person would know what he looked like and sounded like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it might not be so. And a role that uh, a, an actor could have a lot of fun portraying. <laughs> right. Well, let's see. I will go to a film that, okay, let me go to a film. That's the complete opposite of my first one. <laughs> I have actually gone and finished the matrix films. I ah. taught, I taught the first one in my action class earlier this year. And so I rewatched it. And I have I had seen the second one before, but I'd never actually seen the third one. So I uh, rewatched the first one earlier this year. And then uh, in July, I watched the second one. I watched the Animatrix. Hmm. And then I finally watched the third one. And uh, I'll just talk a little bit about the Matrix. I mean, I think all of the films are flawed. I yes. think even the first <laughs> one is not like this completely perfect amazing i mean what it does well what it what works in the film absolutely makes it worth seeing and makes it a very fine film but i do think that uh as in the leonard malton book it says that there's a high uh quota of mumbo jumbo in it (laughs) mumbo jumbo quota yes Uh, it's a lot of philosophy doesn't necessarily all mesh i'll say that much Right. And it's it's a lot of the movie is people standing around very serious with sunglasses. This is happening and then this is happening. And this means that. <laughs> the architect. And, yeah. But the action scenes are incredible. Yes. And the second one's a lot of fun. Like I I don't think of the second one as being this huge step down. I think that I the think it's better. One, at least the action sequences. The highway chase is insane. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, insane. The, it's like one of the best action scenes you'll ever see in a movie. 
Well, the th- yeah, the second one is uh, an improvement on the in the in in a, the way that it improves on the first one is that it's much more stripped down, yes. straightforward action movie. Yes, and it doesn't have as much people standing around explaining blue pill, the plot. red pill, right? Uh, Butterfly dreamed it was a human sort of stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, the first the, one's like one... a philosophy one hundred and one for dummies sort of thing. That's like hidden as an action movie. And the second right. one is an action movie. Right. It's the type of movie that if you were like, uh, you know, it's 19 year old in college taking philosophy. It's like, this movie's blowing my mind. <laughs> but, uh, and you go get the poster for it at Spencer's exactly. in the mall. But uh, no, the, the second one's a lot of fun. The, the one thing that really doesn't age very well about the film is that there's some really bad CGI where it, mm-hmm. they, when the, I mean, yes. when it is old school and is uh, choreographed, it's amazing fight scenes, obviously enhanced with, you know, wire work. And it's not mm-hmm. at all following the laws of actual gravity. I mean, they're in the <laughs> matrix, but there are scenes where the, figures the humans go fully and do a cgi figure and it looks and like a it, video game yeah very much so but that was um, very early it was like revolutionary special effects at the time that and like the lord of the rings movies were the first to really sort of push the limits but the thing that makes jurassic park and terminator 2 yeah. and the early lord of the rings movies actually have really good cgi and sometimes better than cgi that came out 10 years later is that it yeah. mixed animatronics and practical effects a lot of matte paintings right they were actually animated from f- real physical things mm-hmm. and that they you know so there was a basis of actual movement yeah it was just touch-ups rather than creating an entire like scene basically that's just like a video game Right, right. So, and I, the third one is fun. I mean, I don't think it's like, oh my God, this is just completely. But the problem with The Matrix is that it has all this setup and all this, yes. like, we're going towards something. The and mythology, ends... I'm not too interested in. No. And it just basically ends with another fight, a cool one, but it's just like they have this big fist fight where they're in the rain. That's with the slow-mo fist hitting the cheek, right, is a big part of that. Right. (laughs) It's like we built up this whole film series just to have a cool fight, but it just kind of is anticlimactic. Yes. Um, And also, even though it is stirring and cool, I mean, honestly, like half of the movie is those those creature electric creature bug things, you know, the the, (laughs) just attacking ships in the real world. The Nebuchadnezzar, right? And, and, right. and it just that goes on forever, ever, yes. and it just takes up to. And it's it's one of those things where you have people you knew they were like sitting in a green chair and they're going, oh, <laughs> and they're just having to shoot, and it's and they're giving it their all. But... That's especially the third one, right, where they attack the the human city, right? right. Is that the third one? Well, I can't remember what those things are called. They're the they're like virus, like these ship yes. things that are super fast, and they're like. Uh, but they're, they're like, like have minds of their own, right? Um, but the the movie I really wanted to talk about, and I'll, I'll say that the the Animatrix is uh, very beautifully made, and it's just this that anthology came out between the second and the third, right? Right. Yeah, I was looking at IMDb, and like, there's some country where it came out before the second one, but in the U.S., the second one came out. The second and third film came out both in 2003, yeah. Yeah. and then uh, the it was the Animatrix was released straight to video between the second and third, um, and the Animatrix is worth seeing. It's just a uh, really, I mean, I'm not really a anime 
uh, fans so much uh, don't really know that much about it. It became but a I, little mainstream during that. Remember the scene Kill Bill Volume 1 that has the anime? Right, right. But uh, I did... Uh, so I, you know, I talked about the Matrix, but I really wanted to set up. I have completed the at least theatrical oeuvre of the Wachowskis because I just a few days ago watched Speed Racer. Ah, a very divisive movie. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Now I remember all the hoopla to... about it when it came out. Where some people yeah. thought it was like the worst movie ever made. Yeah, it has a thirty-seven on Metacritic. Yeah. And uh, you know what? I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. I. I, Emil Hirsch, it, right, plays Speed Racer? Yeah, the parents are played by John Goodman and Susan Sarandon. Oh, wow. It has, has a Chris, good cast. It has a really yeah, good cast. Christina Ricci, Matthew Fox, Rain, uh, the martial arts star. Um, it, it's one of those where a filmmaker you know, has this really successful series, The Matrix, or has a really successful film, and they're like, what do you want to make next? Yeah, and they get I want to make launch. a live-action version of Speed Racer. It's like... <laughs> what why <laughs> but you know i i honestly will have to say it is one of the better live action films i've seen based on a cartoon not that's kind of damning with faint praise i do <laughs> yeah. really like uh robert altman's popeye which is very bizarre the uh Flintstones but, movie. <laughs> well i do think that yeah that see speed racer to me is better than the flintstones uh-huh. the flintstones is not a very good movie um but john the, goodman this, though it's a connective yeah, tissue. <laughs> right, right. But Speed Racer came out in 2008. And I shouldn't, you know, I, I criticize the Matrix sequels for having some bad CGI. I mean, this movie is like, it, it's almost a misnomer to say it's live action because mm-hmm. it is incredibly candy colored CGI. Like there are scenes where like they're out they're they're driving up to the house and like, Everything on screen except the actors is CGI pretty mm-hmm. much. You know, it is just candy colored video game, but it has such a sincerity to it. I don't really know why, besides, I, I assume that the Wachowskis were fans mm-hmm. of the original series, which I watched the first two episodes on Amazon Prime just to get a taste of it. And it's this very low budget, uh, you know flapping mouth you know they dubbed it and the <laughs> animation it's like someone will be standing very still and the mouth will just be moving like this and, <laughs> and then a lot of stuff yeah. in the background like whizzes yeah. by right <laughs> yeah but uh and it's cute i mean I, I i could see if i was younger and i had grown up watching it i would have been really attached uh you know i've been entertained by it but the film is just so sincere and john goodman and susan Strandon bring like more of an emotional weight than you could possibly think uh-huh. <laughs> this subject matter this uh, this property could have i like it when that happens i know and the, i mean and like it there is some of it that's just bizarre they in the tv series they have uh, a monkey in the family mm-hmm. and it's like they treat it like it's just another family member and they have an that. actual monkey play you know in the movie and you're like watching the movie and you're like why is there a monkey like, and it's just because <laughs> there's one in the cartoon I'm like, sure that uh, does not work the same way it does in a cartoon, where like reality isn't really something you need to adhere to. But it's just really funny when they're you know going about the plot and they're like, oh, and the monkey is just like there with them and it's like walking <laughs> out the room with them. It's like you have Susan Sarandon and. Do they ever you know, address it? Like this is why the monkey's there? No, it's just like he's one of the. It's like the other son. They you know. But uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the movie, and I wish I had seen it in IMAX 3D on shrooms. But uh, it's uh, super... you would have ran out of the theater screaming. 
I mean, I've thought before that there's some movies that almost would be too much to see it uh, in IMAX. Like, imagine seeing Eraserhead in IMAX. That would like, oh yeah, be, that would be see. like a nightmare from which yeah. you can't wake but, up. I know, and it's less than ninety minutes. But <laughs> uh, Speed Racer is a little long. It's like two hours and fifteen minutes. Oh, wow. um, but I, you know, I just probably I very see. expensive to make. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I it, it's one of those movies that had has had a resurgence of critical uh, appraisal where really? people are like this is like one of the better like it, it's they talk about it almost as being like this candy colored pop art work of art you or know like Tron or something like that yeah and they just have they look at it as this really stylish and the I mean I haven't read too much about it but they were talking about how just visually how the film is like deconstructing like how you tell a film with narrative and visuals and like the races are crazy because they'll just like be driving and then like they'll be going upside down and then the it's like you, you can't even see where the edits are it's like the it's not just like straightforward and backward it's like things are going upside down and it's like time and space or just warped in really crazy ways so uh i actually really enjoyed it i mean i would say that it's uh better than the third matrix film mm. uh it's better than jupiter ascending that's uh, <laughs> a low bar it's a low right. low bar but the wachowskis are um you know it's interesting that they were the wachowski brothers and they've both transitioned so mm. they're now i don't know if they refer to themselves as the wachowski sisters or just the wachowskis or, <laughs> right uh but they uh i the thing i'm going to watch next uh is since eight their netflix series mm -hmm. which is really bonkers uh, but I really like Speed Racer. I recommend it. It's not going to be for everyone. And I certainly, I don't think I'm like the target target audience. I'm not someone that generally likes CGI field, uh -huh. you know, like based on kid cartoon movie, but, uh, I recommend Speed Racer. So that's my, surprise. That? <laughs> maybe yeah. I'll end up watching that. Uh, yeah. have it's you seen, uh, Max, Cloud Atlas? The yeah. One oh, they oh, co so Speed Racers on HBO Max, but okay. yeah, I, I, I love Cloud Atlas. I love Cloud Atlas. I mean, Atlas. It, they uh, definitely swing for the fences with that movie. It is insanely ambitious. Some of right. it, I don't think, works as well as some other parts. I'll say that much. <laughs> it's, I mean, some of it's just kind of hokey, like with Tom Hanks <laughs> The future part, I think, is pretty bad, actually. Where they're speaking that made-up language. Yes. <laughs> in the before times. Da -da -da -da. Yeah, the before time. The hooey hooey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, and and I like I don't this doesn't bother me. Hugh but, Grant is eating people. <laughs> well, and also you have like Halle Berry playing a Jewish woman from yes. the 30s, and you have like Hugo Weaving playing a buxom woman, and uh, you have a Korean actress playing a, like Southern white plantation daughter. I know, yeah, but it's <laughs> like it's like an equal opportunity in that like everyone's playing all these different yes. people, so it's not like oh that person. Well, it's like that person plays this person, so it's exactly. like. Yeah, it, you know, you, you got to be offended. Some by work better. Than, exactly. You need to be offended by the whole movie <laughs> if you're going to take any well, offense. Well, I just admire that it's a nearly three hour long yes. R-rated film with gay characters. They shoot a dog. Uh, it's in six different time periods. Yes. It's also directed by um, Ty Tom Tyker. Tom Tyker, yeah. Run, Lola, run. run. Right. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm a big fan and defender of the Chowskis, even if uh, not all their films work. Like, mm -hmm. Jupiter Ascendings is not good. No. Not good. You cannot but, you fault know, their ambition. You can say that much. And one reason, another reason besides just not having ever seen the third one, um, you know they started shooting a fourth film 
uh, in the pandemic hit. Oh and, yeah. And, um, and, uh, only, uh, one of them is directing it because one of them is kind of stepped away from the entertainment world, at least for the time being. Hmm. Um, I can't remember which, uh, is not doing, I think Lana is the one directing it, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. So, uh, my, I, I, I did not watch cloud atlas recently uh but i recommend that but the one i watched recently that i do recommend too is uh, speed racer mm-hmm. well i know that you have watched a film by this director sam peckenbaugh recently so i'll give you a nice little transition to go from mine to your next one if you want to uh the getaway which i think is one you have not seen directed by Correct. sam peckenbaugh from 1972 starring steve mcqueen and alan mcgraw one of the classic posters, McQueen, McGraw, The Getaway. I mean, I, the, I think the first thing I ever saw from this movie was like a picture of the poster on the internet. And I was like, that sounds intriguing. Oh, it's a Sam Peckinpah movie. And it took me a really long time to actually see the movie after like first hearing about it. But I watched it this past month. And like some of his movies can be, some of the aspects of it are like insanely upsetting. But... You still he sort of gets away with it because it's such like a well crafted and extremely well edited. That's sort of like the main trademark of a Sam Peckinpah movie is the editing is just like so out of this world compared to the normal movies you're used to seeing. And the getaway had that definitely that sort of trademark style. But not I mean, I guess some of his movies have big stars, like William Holden is in uh The Wild Bunch and Dustin Hoffman is in Stray Dogs, but Steve McQueen Straw, is like yeah. a really, really big star. So it was interesting to see how he handled like a Steve McQueen movie. Like, you know what I mean? Any movie Steve McQueen is in is going to be a Steve McQueen movie, not like the director. So it's interesting to see how it sort of worked as both a Steve McQueen movie and a Sam Peckinpah movie. And I mean, apparently they both like the experience enough to make a Junior Bonner the next year or maybe actually, a couple years after that. Yeah, Junior Bonner actually came out first. They came out the same year. I know oh, really? Which they shot first. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, the 1965 film, The Cincinnati Kid, that stars Steve McQueen, Sam Peckinpah started directing it. Really? And he got fired. Or You know, I've heard that the only movie that Sam Peckinpah ever made that came out completely as he wanted to, and he had total creative freedom, was Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Really? And so that's why, like, so many of his movies have director's cuts on home video because, you know, and it's not just, oh, they were against him. And No, he was a drunk, violent <laughs> guy who was, like, shooting guns off yes. on set and was, you know, he would do things like, go to a screening with the producers or the critics and urinate on the screen up front, you know, be drunk. And, uh, you know, he was a very difficult person. And you get he, that sort of anarchic quality in the movies that he makes, to be honest. Right. Yeah. I, the, so uh, I actually, we can just talk about it together. I actually recently watched two film, uh, two projects he directed. I watched his first uh, theatrical film, the Deadly Companions, which I read the novel like a year ago, but I never gotten around to watching the film. It stars Brian Keith and Maureen O'Hara, hmm. and it's a pretty standard Western. Uh, it's like right about 90 minutes, but it's surprisingly dark and psychologically rich for um, a Western of that time. Sort because... of before New Hollywood. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And he uh, the basic premise is there is a bank robber played by Brian Keith 
who goes into a town and they're going to he has his two partners and they're going to rob the bank and uh a bank robbery uh, happens while they're there that they don't do and he's trying to shoot one of the robbers and he shoots Marino Hera's kid and kills him oh my this gosh. little kid and Marino Hera is a prostitute in town and she has a uh um, a son who everyone thinks she's had out of wedlock and everyone talks about her behind her back and uh, she is going to she's determined to go across Indian territory to bury her son next to her, uh, the father who oh, died wow. while she was pregnant. Very strong. Uh, and plot and Bri- yeah, and Brian Keith uh, insists on helping her across Indian territory because he doesn't think that she'll survive. And she at first like he just like goes along and tracks behind her and she's like do not follow me and she he obviously ends up helping her uh-huh. and um it's a pretty standard western uh you know it, it has the tropes and it's 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 not one of his great films but it's interesting seeing the filmmaker's first film and how there are moments and themes and cinematic techniques that go into uh-huh. his later films for example uh there are a number of scenes in the wild bunch where you see children in the town uh doing violence you see yes. them putting the uh the scorpion, scorpion the, yeah Right, right. And then the Deadly Companions, they come into town and the children are play fighting with swords. Uh, And so you're seeing, you know, some of his motifs start from the very beginning. And Maureen O'Hara is always, you know, uh, know, beautiful and a great movie star. One of the classic Hollywood leading ladies. Right. And the other thing I'll uh, say is that I just the other day I watched partially as a remembrance of Olivia de Havilland, who died at 104 yes. last month. I watched a uh, television episode from 1966. It was an episode of a series called ABC Stage uh, 67. It was a 51-minute a, a episode of uh, uh, called Noon Wine, hmm. N-O-O-N Wine. I see Jason I, Robards was in it. Yeah, Jason Robards, Olivia de Havilland, Theodore Bikel, Ben Johnson, oh. L.Q. Jones – uh, who's still with us. He's like in his early 90s and was in everything. Um, and that's like surprisingly dark for being on television. Oh, really? In the 60s. Yeah, <laughs> it's about a uh, Jason Robards uh, has a f- small farm and a man who is a foreigner comes and asks for work and he starts working and he's there for many years. And uh, he's kind of, you know, very secretive and he's kind of keeps to himself but a man comes and says that he killed his brother and they've been looking for him he escaped from a mental institution and uh jason wrote well i won't give away any more but uh i'll just say that uh the the, someone gets killed with an axe in it and someone commits suicide by shooting themselves with a double barrel shotgun in it and this was on like abc yeah in the early in (laughs) the mid 60s um but uh, this is yeah, before on, Disney bought it. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, on the Twilight Time Blu-ray of his film, The Killer Elite, which I have not seen, huh. which interestingly stars James Caan and Robert Duvall after The Godfather. Wow. What's uh, also random trivia uh, before MASH. Just a few years before Robert Altman directed a space program drama called Countdown, which also stars Robert Duvall and James Caan. So they've worked together a number of times outside of The Godfather. <laughs> With but, very well-respected directors. <laughs> right. And uh, But yeah, so I have now seen Sam Peckinpah's first X number of movies in a row. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, the next two on order are 
the two he did with Steve McQueen, Junior Bonner, uh, which is one of his quote unquote nicer westerns in the sense it's not one of his super violent ones. It's more of a character. <laughs> it's study. a very sensitive character study, yeah, about a professional bull rider played by Steve McQueen. Um, yeah, which you as, can imagine uh, some of the bull riding sequences are just like extravaganzas of editing technique. Some right. of the stuff you wouldn't necessarily expect to be like super crazy edited. Like there's a part where a house is destroyed and it takes like two minutes of just like different angles and different sounds. I mean, these well, very, very particular sort of editing style in Sam Peck and Pod movies. And uh, so you've seen Junior Bonner? Mm hmm. Yeah, and uh, it has stars. It's actually one of her last films, Ida Lupino, who was the great, um, uh, one of the very few female directors at the time in the 40s and 50s. Um, and she is in the film, was nominated for, uh, for some acting awards. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I own both Junior Bonner and The Getaway on Blu-ray, and I own the novel of The Getaway, written by Jen Thompson. So do you want to talk just a little bit more about The Getaway? Yeah, The Getaway is about a guy who's been in prison for some time, Steve McQueen, and his wife, Allie McGraw, makes a deal with Ben Johnson, who's like a rich Texan, that he's going to rob a bank for him in exchange for a shortened prison sentence. And there's questions whether Allie McGraw, you know, has been faithful to him, and that's like a big conflict in the beginning of the movie. But eventually it becomes about the bank heist and the (laughs) entitled getaway, uh, where the, the people they robbed the bank with have a bit of a uh a showdown to the end of the movie but uh al Littieri, who plays uh who was it uh he's one of the bad guys in the godfather you know the one who gets shot in the head in the italian restaurant you know what i'm talking about oh yeah well well oh, okay you mean not um not hurling staden but the other yes, guy yeah, yeah, shot yeah, too. Yeah. right it's literally the only movie i've ever seen the guy in so it was a little bit shocking to first see him because i've only ever seen him in the godfather so it's hard to disassociate that character with the one in this movie, but truly one of the more despicable film characters I've ever seen. The person he plays in this movie, like he does some of the aw- most like awful stuff I've ever seen a character do in a movie. But well, uh... I have to say <laughs> that one of my favorite things about Peckinpah's films, and there's many things I admire about his work, is that he has amazing character actors, grizzled, ugly, mm-hmm. sweaty, dusty. You know, people that just you look at him and go, you know, people like this used to be in movies. Like <laughs> I, Ben Johnson what, is the perfect example of that. Yeah, and like Warren Oates. Yes. I mean, it's like in Bring the Head of uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. There's an early scene where he's worried that he has crabs or something, and he just pours alcohol right on his crotch <laughs> to try to kill the <laughs> lice or whatever. Uh, but I'll say too that. Um, you know, one movie I have no desire to ever see is they did a remake of Straw Dogs. Yes, with a James few years Marsden. Ago. Yeah, Ex- like, <laughs> what, you know, the I, now Dustin Hoffman's one of our greatest living actors, but he is not typically handsome. He's a nebbish. Yes. The point of that original film is that he is this meek. Yeah, and they're like, you know, this guy, this guy is married yeah. to her. Yeah, and then. It, and then they do a remake, and you cast James Marsden, who's extremely <laughs> well known you know, as being one of the most handsome actors, if not necessarily the most gifted. <laughs> I just don't understand. Like it's like when they remade Carrie, and I think Chloe Grace Moretz is a fine young actress, but in the original, Sissy Spacek was so vulnerable and looked uh-huh. like this frightened animal, and it was just that you just were haunted, and you just felt such sympathy for her character. And then you see the remake, which is directed by a very good filmmaker, Kimberly Pierce, who directed uh-huh. Boys Don't Cry, and it's just like 
you see Chloe Grace Moretz and you're like, oh, she's just like a normal teenager. She just <laughs> yeah, looks exactly. too normal. You don't buy her being this, you know. But yeah, so casting is very important. I yes. think Tekken Pot was an incredible, yes. uh, you know, ca- you know, in you know the supporting characters. Uh, but yeah, so the getaway has some good faces. Grizzled. Oh yes, uh, Sally Struthers, who is I think in On the Family. On the Family, yeah, plays very much against type in this movie as uh, a put upon wife. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one I really recommend. Uh, the parts that I mentioned before that are some of the more grotesque stuff you'll see on, on camera are not necessarily the most pleasant things to sit through, but they make a, a good contrast to the other stuff you see in the movie. And ultimately it all works really, really well, but it's got some weird tonal shifts in terms of uh, going from some stuff to other stuff, which can be expected from a Sam Peckinpah movie, but it's, yeah, it's around the sort of the mid tier ones that I've seen. It's not the wild bunch. Um, but, uh, well, yeah. it ha- it also has Slim Pickens. Yes, and uh, he doesn't show up until really, really late. I saw him in the cast and thought he was going to be like a big part of the movie, which disappointingly he was not. And uh, Bo Hopkins is in it, who is in the Wild Bunch, and he was born where I was in Greenville, South Carolina. How about that? But um, well, I will since you talked about we kind of talked together about Peck and Pa. I will connect it as an interesting, very inside joke uh, connection. The most recent film I watched just uh, uh, the other day, I watched a very bizarre western from 1971 by Rainer Werner Fassbender called Whitey, which is so bizarre. And the reason I'll connect it is that there's a wanted poster in the jail cell with Jason Robard's picture on it, which is kind of an inside joke. But this is a movie that, you know, Fassbender did about 45 films in 13 years before dying of a drug overdose at age 37. Mm -hmm. And this was like one of like seven films he did that year or something. I mean, he had like insane. (laughs) Surprised he didn't like die of a heart attack earlier or something. Well, yeah, and um, he did a film called Whitey that is a Western shot in widescreen by Michael Balhas, who dr- shot so many important yeah. films, shot Goodfellas, a number of Scorsese's, shot other Fassbender films. A lot films. of Vim Vendor's movies, I think. Right, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. And it is a film shot on the sets of Sergio Leone Westerns. and it's. Yep, and it's shot uh, with um, the uh, okay. So you have one of his uh, frequent actors, this African American actor. Uh, well, I guess maybe African German. I don't know if he was, uh, you know, but a black man. And the uh, white family in the movie is in white face, like really like pancake pancake batter white face, like really made up to look white. One of the sons is mentally retarded and like drools in some of the movie and then one's a transvestite and the movie is basically about this really messed up family is it set in the old west yep it's it's never specified where it's set but it's set um like in the 1870s or something um and it's uh basically about this really messed up family that the in even uh whitey the the 
uh, slave, the black butler, he is like really mistreated and he wants to be, he's almost like uh, Samuel Jackson's character in Django and Jane. Oh, really? He's like, he's like, you know, no, don't whip my, don't whip the son, whip me, master, whip me. And it's just this really warped look at, you know, I, I watched it with a friend and he said, you know, it's, you question what parts of the movie are like accurate depictions uh-huh. of some of the ways slaves and uh, Africans so were I guess treated. Point is to sort of demythologize the American Western a little yeah. bit. And also what's bizarre is that it's it's like filmed on Sergio Leone Westerns uh, sets, but there, you know, it has this kind of old school Hollywood uh-huh. uh, Western John Ford kind of thing. Right. And, and what's so weird about it, it is so slow. It is it's yeah. like 95 minutes, but it's like if you like you sped everything down, like in it, like scenes, it's like one of those movies where someone will like walk down a flight of stairs and you're going to watch him for, you know, 30 seconds, walk all the way down the stairs. You're going to see him walk all the way across the room uh-huh. and everything is very stretched out and very deliberate. And it's like, if you read the plot synopsis and you read like, this is what's happening in this scene. It's like heated and melodramatic, but he just like the, and if you've seen other Fassbender films, he often had the actors read it in a very detached arch way where it's like, take all the emotion out of it. Uh And it's, it's a, it's like beautifully shot in color widescreen. And it's just like, you know, the look of it and the plot of it is like a very heated, melodramatic, typical Western, but the way he deconstructs it is just so bizarre. And it's just funny in parts because you're just like, this is so slow and stilted. And like, why is the son all of a sudden like in garters and he's like a transvestite? Okay, he's a transvestite now. <laughs> you know? And uh, I, 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 my friend wasn't sure, but I'm pretty sure that the other African uh, worker in the house is a white actress in blackface. So it's like you have white face and blackface uh-huh. and it's like, it's just, it's a very bizarre film. It's not easily. It sounds available. like it's almost like a student film. Like it's just like trying some really out there concepts and seeing if it all works. <laughs> yeah, Does it but, work? I mean, <laughs> well, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, but it's, it's, I mean, but it's like legitimately beautiful, like incredible camera work. Like there's a scene where the, I mean, the basic, basic plot is the father, um, the well, the husband, yeah, and the father of the two sons. Well, the other thing is that, uh, like, partway through the film, it's, like, almost offhanded. Like, you have to pay attention is that this, uh-huh. the butler is um, actually you find out he's mixed race because he's the illegitimate son of the, the father, uh-huh. of the husband. And it, uh, it's basically about them all backstabbing each other. Like you should, uh, he they ask Whitey to kill the father, and the father lies and says that he's dying. And uh-huh. but there, uh, there's a scene where he's reading his will, and the camera works just incredible because it will like swoop in on one character and it'll swing over to another and it'll swing back over and it'll swing over here. And it's just, it. I mean, it's you say it's. I mean, that kind of the boldness of a student film, like we're going to go after race, sexuality, but it's, but it's gorgeous. Like a legitimate, like widescreen master filmmaker. Yeah. And it's funny that the next film of his, I want to watch the one that came after this. He did a movie that's about the making of the film. One of his many great titles is called beware of a holy whore. 
And it's about a uh, group of filmmakers, actors, directors that are stuck on location filming a movie and they're all like sleeping with each other and getting drunk and being, you know, mean to each other. Uh And it's about what happened making that movie. So, uh, yeah, I was saying that Whitey is not easily available. I actually had to buy an out of print DVD. It's not streaming anywhere, but it's one that would be great for the Criterion Collection to release. They have a lot of his. But, um, I mean, they have like, 20 something of his movies probably streaming on the criterion channel so you can certainly see a lot of his movies but mm. whitey is one even though it's funny because i think his first film came out in 1969 and this one came out in 1971 but it's like his 10th film he mm-hmm. he was so prolific that like just you know a few I mean, years i mean i'm looking at his movies now it is insane how much he made in such a short period like literally right. only like 12 years and there's a biopic that's coming out that uh, that the trailer was released not long ago, and um, so yeah, I, I re- uh, you know it's not easy to see, but I watched Whitey from 1971 by Rainer Werner Fassbender, so mm-hmm. that's uh, <laughs> a random film. So what's another one that you watched recently? Well, I'll, I'll bring us back to America with uh, one maybe not everyone has heard of, but I was very pleasantly surprised a Sidney Pollock movie from 1974 the yakuza have you heard of this one it is uh written by paul schrader right Mm -hmm. yes exactly with robert town so actually sort of like an all-star team of Sidney pollock paul schrader robert town starring robert mitchum and ken takakura who's a very famous famous uh, japanese actor um generally just about like an american gi who uh like fell in love with a woman in the war but had to move back to america and and goes back to japan because a former business partner and fellow gi from world war ii asks him to do a favor that he has to get this sort of like japanese honor promise from this man whose sister he fell in love with during the war but had to leave and it become he becomes like involved with uh, the japanese crime organization the yakuza and there's a lot of interesting east east west sort of things going on but like a really, really good late career Robert Mitchum performance. Uh, well, I don't know. I guess he had a bit of a resurgence in the 70s with like the Friends of Eddie Coyle and stuff like that. But I think is best known for being in like Cape Fear and stuff like that in the 50s. And uh, Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter, exactly. But really one of like the classic American actors and um, <laughs> sort of a, a nice companion to uh, Hardcore, which is a movie I watched recently with... Uh, uh damn it what's his name who won george, c. george scott. c scott yeah as sort of like paul schrader elderly american uh like actors from the 50s and 60s going back and really delivering sort of i wouldn't say career defining but something that puts uh their whole acting career in a bit of a different perspective when you see them in one of the older roles uh but really really enjoyable action movie um i've had if you you've heard of this right you haven't seen it though I've not seen either of them, uh, but I've heard of. Uh, I, I think that the Yakuza. What year did it come out? 1974. It's pretty early Sidney Pollock movie. Right. Uh, one of my favorite films of his uh, is They Shoot Horses, Don't They, which is a great depressing movie. Which was his like the... first movie, right, from 1969? Yeah. I think it's also the trivia. It is the most Oscar-nominated film ever that was not nominated for Best Picture. Yes. 
random trivia. But, Incredibly uh, sad movie. They shoot oh, horses. Yeah. yeah. One of the many good films from 1969. That was a yes. very good year for film. But yeah. But uh, yeah, I um, I know that. I, I think that that was a film that Paul Schrader did not entirely like. Yes. It didn't come out as. Robert Town it. sort of took it over. It was going to be apparently much, much darker, as you could imagine. Paul Schrader's warped sense of the world might uh, come out to show. Uh, but, you know, he got a big taxi driver and then uh, hard. First Reformed was my favorite film the year it was released in the U.S., but I haven't seen any of his other movies except uh, that he's directed besides Mishima Life in Four Chapters, which is terrific, mm-hmm. uh, which if I was ever going to teach a class on the biopic, that would be a great one to pick because it's so original and, you know, it's not, like the opposite of a standard biopic. Mm-hmm. But um, I have not seen yeah, that I, one. They're, they're releasing one of his uh, – I follow him on Facebook, Schrader, and he posted that he just got sent uh, – one of his movies is getting released in the Criterion Collection. I can't remember which one, um, but there's one that's coming out soon. So I need to catch up. I need to see Hardcore and Blue Collar and uh, Cat People. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to catch up <laughs> on his uh, – Natasha <laughs> Right, right. Well, um, I will go to a movie. Let me pick one that came out this year, actually. Uh, I was saying to, before we started recording that for some reason, I had not watched a single movie that had come out this year since the pandemic started. Yes. But uh, at the beginning of this month in August, I started watching a few documentaries. And one I watched was, uh, I want to talk about depressing, Welcome to Chechnya. It's a film uh, came out earlier this year, directed by David France, who directed the really exceptional documentary How to Survive a Plague about the AIDS epidemic. Uh, Welcome to Chechnya is about the area of Russia where there are gay people that are just tortured and murdered by the government or people murder and torture people that are queer and the government doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. The leader of the country just openly says, oh, we don't have gay people. and If we do, they should leave. And it's a very harrowing, upsetting film. You know, it's one of those that's obviously depressing, but it should be. And uh, it's just a it's as riveting as a fictional thriller. And it's just extremely watchable, even though it's depressing. Mm -hmm. And it's about a group that tries to get people out of the area and get them to Canada or other countries to asylum to have, uh, you know, escape the abuse that they're facing. And on a technical note, what's really fascinating is that like the almost like the Irishmen, Uh uh, a number of the people in the film they digitally manipulate their face so they have a different face, their hiding ah. identity. And very faintly, I think almost purposely, they, there's a little bit of a pixelation. Uh-huh. But, for example, one of the men uh, towards the end of the film comes forward and reveals his true identity. And his face suddenly digitally erases and you see his real face and it's a totally different face. And the whole movie, there's many of the main characters that are the people escaping. Uh-huh from Chechnya, they have a, a, a different face. So instead of making the actors younger in the Irishmen, they're giving them completely different faces yeah. to preserving anonymity. Right. So it's interesting seeing how this technology can not just be used for uh, narrative films, but be used in the yeah. context of documentary. That is so. actually really cool. I never even thought about it being used in that way. That's sort of like when Autotune came out. And <laughs> Kanye West is the only person to use it differently. A bit of a stretch. Right. But... Well, yeah, this is a little bit more probably, uh, you know, used for better, you know. I, I, possibly. Auto-tune. I'm a big fan of 808s and Heartbreak. 
what so this came out what on a streaming service or yeah it's on hbo max it's an hbo film um it's one of the best reviewed documentaries hbo actually makes a lot of really good documentaries right so uh even it's one of those films where the the subject matter is obviously heavy it's not a feel-good film but you were inspired by the people that are trying to Mm -hmm. do the good fight and uh there that you see uh and it, it makes you think about, you know, what does it mean to have a good life? Like if you have to drop everything and move to another country, it's like how much these people fight to oh, yeah. have, just to survive. And uh, it's also just interesting as a documentary how, you know, how much has changed since the Maisel brothers and the early Frederick Wiseman cinema, Verit- cinema verite, because literally there'll be scenes like where they're in the airport and they're filming it on their phone and like it's obvious they're like hiding it out of you know like you're seeing like will this person get past? i guess not under government sanctions that this documentary was made or not with government approval oh yeah no (laughs) so very guerrilla filmmaking yeah like you're seeing in the moment the you know is this woman going to get through security they're like looking at her passport and she's like oh i'm visiting my family and it's it's like the scene in argo but real yeah you know it's like are they going to get on the plane like they're sitting there and they're like they're waiting for the plane to take off and it's just incredibly nail-biting because and and it's real so you don't know if they're going to make it that's pretty Uh, insane i mean sort of the purpose of a lot of documentaries is to expose uh, part of the world or experiences that are almost like inconceivable to some people in Western audiences. So it sounds like a definitely a uh, documentary that was worth making. It will leave an impression on you if you see yeah. it. So welcome to Chechnya came out earlier this year. It's on HBO and HBO max. Highly recommend it. Wow. I don't have anything quite as serious to finish on. I don't think, uh, cause we will probably be wrapping up soon, but I will also finish with a, movie that was released this year that i saw in a streaming service that i'm not sure you've seen but i was very pleasantly surprised by it is the new will ferrell feature eurovision song contest the story of fire saga so very different totally from the new movie you saw this year but to be honest i think it is the best will ferrell movie of the last 10 years i think since the other guys this is the best thing he's come up with it is for people who aren't familiar with Eurovision, it is a annual song contest where each European nation gets a representative that they send to the ultimate competition where they decide what is Europe's best original song for the year. A lot of people may know it from ABBA, who won with the single Waterloo in, I think, 1973 or 1974, and that's the sort of thing they introduced the movie with. But Will Ferrell plays uh, an Icelandic person whose father never uh, recognizes his dream of being a pop singer and winning Eurovision. It's a really insane uh, sort of plot to have, but it's actually one of the better Will Ferrell performances you'll see. And actually, like, a very winning performance from Rachel McAdams, who I haven't seen uh, really do really incredible work since maybe, like, Spotlight, uh, which was, what, 2015, 2016? Um but it's actually like really really good in this movie and overall it was just a very very pleasant positive movie that left me with a very good feeling afterwards which is all you can really ask for from a comedy so that is one i highly recommend to anyone who has not seen it it is available on netflix and uh it's good to see netflix putting its absolute bottomless pit of cash to some good use uh and not only on very very bad david spade movies 
So, <laughs> I recommend this highly to you, Jonathan. I know you were a big fan, at least back in the day, of Will Ferrell, so maybe you could give this one a chance soon. Yeah, I mean, when Will Ferrell is funny, they're screamingly funny. Yes. I mean, I think he's one of the funniest people alive. Yeah, I haven't seen the film. It's It got pretty good reviews. I just It's one of the giant list of movies. Oh, I should watch that sometime, yes. maybe. But, um, but I don't I'll, know, when uh, was the, like, the last great Will Ferrell movie you remember? Like, well, this is kind of technicality. He's not in it much, but the first Lego movie is fantastic, and he is in the live action part voice? of that. Oh, okay. No, he's he plays a human. Have you seen the Lego movie? <laughs> I haven't. I've seen uh, the Lego Batman movie. It I has like the a the, the first Lego movie has like an eighty three on Metacritic. I know like, it's, it's uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller who were yeah. really good uh, comedic duo. Right. It's funny. The first one's really good. I saw the sequel part two it's awful it's like one of the worst films i saw that year uh it's like just doing it over again but it, it did not another work. lego movie <laughs> it's like called part you know it's like the part two like uh-huh. brick two or something like that as some some pun about part two chris pratt but, is like the the main voice in those movies right 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 well i'll end with a movie that's completely the opposite of that um it's a film called mandabi i think that's how you pronounce it or the money order came out in 1968, and it's by the great African director from Senegal. I'm probably going to butcher his name, but his name is Asamain Simbane. Do you know who I'm talking about? I don't think you pronounced that right. <laughs> no, I don't know. What's it's, the name of the movie? His, it's M-A-N-D-A-B-I. The American translation, the English translation, is uh, The Money Order. Um, Mandabi. Yeah, yeah. How would you pronounce his name? Usmane Simbane. Yeah, yes. Uh, I had only seen his first – It's now this is a technicality because like when we did the director's uh, list, we did if it's 60 minutes or longer, it's a feature. His first one is 59 minutes, so Ooh. that's like right <laughs> under. Uh, but Black Girl, I taught in my uh, international film class, and this is his uh, first – or if you want to count Black Girl as a feature, it's his second feature film – and uh, I got it out of DVD at the library, but it's actually streaming on Amazon Prime. It's on one of those where if you get a trial of something, you can get it free for a week uh-huh. and then you cancel it. Um, but it's this really funny, humane movie about a man who is has two wives and he uh, – he gets a money order from a family member who lives in Paris and he's like, Oh, I'm going to be able to pay off my debts. I can get this. I can get that. I can help my friends out. And it's all about the bureaucracy of him trying to get that money order. So he goes to get the money order and they go, well, you have to have a, uh, an ID to get it. And so he goes, Oh, where'd I get an ID? Oh, you have to go to this office. And so he goes to the office to get an ID and they go, well, you have to have a birth certificate with a photo, you know? And so he has to go get a birth certificate. I'm like, well, you can't get a birth certificate unless you have this piece of paper and you have uh-huh. three photos of yourself. And so it's <laughs> just to him get it notarized, <laughs> right? It's just him going around trying to get all this paperwork and IDs and birth certificate and he ends up having it's like it isn't even worth it to get the money order and uh-huh. it just shows you how money can warp a family and friendship and it's a very funny movie and kind of a dry you know with a you know tinge of melancholy throughout uh-huh. the film because he's you know trying to get, and he's so excited about getting this money uh, but it's just a very wise uh, smart movie and it's just it's one of those where it's just such uh, a different 
world, you know, has two wives, he's mm-hmm. Muslim, you know, they're living, you know, very, uh, you know, they're like, they eat with their hand, you know, it's just like every aspect of their lives is like so foreign to our lives, you mm-hmm. know, the, 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 where they shop, you know, how they get, but money worldwide, people, the way they act about money and the relationships, that is very universal. Mm-hmm. And that's what's interesting is that even though someone's life, the specifics can be very, uh, you know, specific to that culture, that country, uh, the the themes of, uh, you know, greed and uh, jealousy. You know, what, right. So, um, like I said, it's on Amazon Prime if you get this free trial. Um, it's I highly recommend it. It's a very funny movie, and I plan on watching a few of his other movies uh, because it's it, and that's, he didn't direct that many. He only directed mm-hmm. uh, about seven or eight feature films, and uh, one of his best ones he supposedly ever did was his last one he did in his early 80s. He I made it a few years before he died. It has like a 91 on Metacritic, and he made this really beautiful, life affirming movie about female circumcision. Uh-huh. And it's called Mulati, I think. Uh-huh. And uh, it's supposedly just a wonderful, wonderful film. But uh, yeah, very, you know, human, you know, filmmaker. And it's like there's some countries, some areas where there's not that huge an output of cinema. Yeah. But, you know, his he's like the most well-known African director probably uh-huh. ever. And certainly one of the most well-known. So if you've never seen any of his films, Black Girl's really good. That's a good taste. But uh, if you want to watch his first one, that's unquestionably a feature film uh-huh. uh, i think you pronounce it mandabi mandabi order yeah the money order from 1968 well there you go some stuff to chew on i think a good uh, amount of stuff that's available for streaming i think also but yeah. uh do you want to just real quick list like two or three other movies just very quick like things you saw that you recommended uh the film performance of hamilton on disney plus was really really good um i don't know if you could count that as a movie but right. it well, was really I'll, excellent. I'll, I'll recommend one that's also not really a movie. It was a TV documentary. It's called A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese Through American Movies. It came out 25 years ago, 1995. And it's like this it's, – uh, it's a little longer uh, – it's about as long as The Irishman. Mm-hmm. And it's him going through – it's a British documentary of him going through some of the movies that most influenced him. And it's not – like, oh, here are the most important movies, Citizen Kane, Vertigo. I mean, certainly he mentions some of those, but he'll go into kind of more obscure movies. Uh-huh. Talks about one. I know he talks movie. about the red shoes a lot in that one. Yeah, A Duel in the Sun. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. So uh, That was like the yeah. first movie he saw or something like that, I think. Duel in the Sun. Yeah, so it's um available on Canopy. If anyone has that, it's pretty easily available. And uh, I'll say that I've been watching a number of films that Ray Harryhausen worked on. I've seen uh-huh. four films of his in the last few months. I saw It Came From Beneath the Sea, 20 Million Miles to Earth, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and Jason and the Argonauts. And, uh, so the last I, uh, one is supposed to be like a real marvel of uh, – what would you call it? Like stop motion animation, right. I guess? Right. And um, I would say of those, the best one is the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Really? Um, I mean, they're, they're kind of cheesy and, you know, I, there's I've there's seen many... a little bit of Jason of the Argonaut. It is a lot of it has not aged super well in terms of no, I, being watchable for modern audiences. There are. But I still would rather watch his incredible stop. Motion oh, yeah. I mean, like... the the famous part where Jason is fighting like an army of undead 
skeleton soldiers is it's really incredible it's right and it was uh it's actually in seventh boy of sinbad there's a brief scene where he fights uh sinbad fights one skeleton and they took that and had a whole army and chasing the argonauts even though in it's funny it's known as like the most famous scene that's Uh the climax of the film but if you look at it it's only like three or four minutes because it took so long to do it was like like you know months and months and months to do it but it was uh yeah so that and i'll just say that two uh foreign films i watched for the first time i'll just quickly recommend i watched jean-luc godard's contempt because it was leaving the Criterion Channel. I mean, it's with Jack Palance. Yeah, very eclectic cast: Bridget Bardot, yes. Jack Palance, Michael Piccoli, right? Yeah, who died a few months ago, uh, was in his nineties, and uh, Fritz Lang, incredible in it as like the director of the movie within the movie. Right, and the other one I just want to recommend. Uh, okay, real quick, I'll recommend uh, two. Uh, I watched Deadly Companions, which I mentioned was the directorial debut, and uh, right around the same time, I watched two other directorial debuts. I watched Lucino Visconti's Obsession, which was his uh, first film, and it's the I'd never seen a film of his before. It's based on The Postman Always Rings Twice, which actually came out uh, before the American version with Lana Turner. And that is also a film that's streaming on Amazon Prime if you get a free trial of one of those services. Uh-huh. And I also watched John Cassavetti's first film, Shadows, ah. which was uh, done improv, you know, uh, and it's it has really... like a jazz soundtrack. Is that right? Right. And uh, it's also very <laughs> weird connection to Whitey is that you have a mixed race lead who I didn't even realize until after the movie when I was reading about it because it was it's like the Eli Kazan film Pinky. It's like uh-huh. it's obviously just a white actress playing a mixed race woman who's very mm-hmm. light skinned. You're like, oh, wait, she was supposed to be mixed race. I didn't realize that. But um, it's uh, about a woman who has uh, African-American brother and the relationships that she has and uh, New York City. And it's very rough around the edges, but it's very mm-hmm. fascinating seeing John Cassavetes so early, yeah. like 1958. You know, doing like a, you know, very early, uh, you know, independent movie, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, with all these fifties qualities to it. Yeah. Uh, but sort anyway, of like an interesting mashup of a period, and because uh, he's one of the really sort of revolutionary independent uh, filmmakers, uh, whose work I probably need to see more of. I've only think I've seen Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which was a frustrating film experience to watch. It's very well, slow. Have you ever seen Woman Under the Influence? No, I haven't seen that one. That's one with uh, his wife, is that right? Right, Gina Rollins, yeah, who turned 90 earlier this year. Mm -hmm. Still with us, one of our greatest living actresses. Yeah, uh, Woman Under the Influence is probably the best of the films I've seen of his, and it's incredible, but it's... Uh, if you're trust IMDb, it said uh, this is a good impression of what it's like. Uh, they said that Richard Dreyfus, who wasn't involved with the film, but they just said that he was so like overwhelmed by the movie that he vomited afterwards because oh it's gosh. just it's just so emotionally draining. Uh-huh. And it's about a woman who's basically, you know, mentally unstable and, uh-huh. and Peter Falk plays her husband. I was really lucky that I got to see a number of his movies about a half a dozen of them or seven at Metrograph in New York City when I was living in New York. And I got to see Gina Rollins in person, got a oh, wow. picture with her. And um, I'll just end with this story. It's funny that um, there was this great television series that was on Showtime in the 80s called Fairy Tale Theater that Shelley Duvall created, which has the classic fairy tales with amazing actors. Like you have Rapunzel with Jeff Bridges and Gina Rollins, huh. and you have, uh, you know, 
the tale of the frog prince with Robin Williams and Terry Garr. And you have the wow. three little pigs with Billy Crystal and Jeff Goldblum and Fred Willard. And you have the nightingale with Mick Jagger and Barbara Hershey. I mean like insane wow. cast. A lot of people that were in Robert Altman films. Cause uh-huh. you know, Shelley Duvall's like first six films were Altman films. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, the episode with Rapunzel, I said, Gina Rollins plays the, uh, the witch and she was terrifying it's like scared me so much when i was a kid because jeff bridges sneaks into her garden to get the radishes and i went up to her after the screening and uh, introduced myself and said hello and i said you terrified me so much when i was young in rapunzel and she's like i don't scare you now do i no 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 and so i have a picture uh with her and i'm wearing a texas chainsaw massacre t-shirt so she was very lovely but that's one of my favorite pictures i have is getting to meet a absolute living legend Mm -hmm. so um she actually very a lot of his actors very briefly pop up in um shadows like you see um um uh I think Cassavetes pops up, but there's a number of Gina Rollins has an uncredited role. And uh, who's the actor that was in a number of his movies? Um, oh, oh uh, Ben Gazzara. No, who's the other one that's um, he Peter died? Falk just, is in a lot of uh... yeah. Oh, what's his name? Uh, oh, I can't believe uh, many he's played in many of Moskowitz. What was his name? I don't you know, Seymour uh, Cassell, yeah, Seymour Cassell. Oh, Cassell. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so a lot of his actors pop up in that movie, even if it's like very brief. Seymour Cassell anyway. is in Rushmore, right? He plays the dad. Right. Yes. Yeah, he just died like a year or two ago. But yeah, anyway, uh, I recommend Shadows. I recommend uh, Cassavetes in general. Anyway, so we rec- we have a number of films recommended. And we will continue to be watching older movies, and I guess movies released on streaming services for the foreseeable future. I guess whenever Tenet comes out, that'll be the next time I see a movie in a theater. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> who knows wear, when that will actually be? Yeah, I'll wear a hazmat suit so I can see. see you'll wear a, you wear a Bane mask. Yeah, exactly. Everyone is going to be cosplaying as Bane when they go see Tenet. But yeah, yeah. hopefully all of this stuff gets sorted so Christopher Nolan can release his next uh, possible masterpiece to the world before too long. But thank you for listening. Uh, We will be back with you guys next time.